Hello. Hi. Welcome back, everybody, to The Weirdest Thing Podcast. That's right. It's The Weirdest Thing back, the original duo. Mm. We're here to do this thing and tell you about some weird stuff. Yeah. So I'm Scotty Milder. I'm Amelia Umpuero. And uh, and you're like, you're like back back. I am back back and currently fighting against a gnat that's in my house. I am Mm. back back in the land of enchantment. I said that weird enchantment. Um, <laughs> super excited to be here. Super excited to be recording this podcast again in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say like we, like we do. We should probably like give everyone a bunch of updates, but maybe we wait till the next episode because it is like the yep. middle of the night. Yeah. We're just going to have to just know that I'm <laughs> back. Uh, Scotty's back. It's now the weirdest thing again. Is it raining? I think so. Yeah. I was like, uh, I'm glad you told me about that scary movie that you saw and that now that now weird <laughs> noises are coming from my house, but I think yep. it's raining. Yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I we'll spent give... all summer in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give you guys like more updates. Like there's, there's more COVID news, uh, amongst yeah. us, everything. <laughs> well, we'll do all that next time. <laughs> yes. This time, uh, we're just going to tell some fucking stories. We're just going to tell some stories. Uh, about, I'm, it was funny. Cause I said weird stuff and I was like, mine's my story is actually not that weird. It's just like, you know, interesting kind of history stuff, but that's fine. Yeah. My, mine is on the weird side, but not like creepy weird. So it'd be like that sometimes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I am starting. Start us off. Okay. And well, hopefully this rain or whatever the fuck this <laughs> is not. Can you hear it? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I heard some thunder too. So, but yeah. you luck out this time because I am not telling a creepy story. Good. Unless you're like creeped out by like angry uh, rock musicians in the 60s. My story is actually, and I don't really have a cold open, uh, but my story is one of the greatest trolls of all time from a rock star to a record label. So, okay. this is the story of Van Morrison's Revenge album. From 1968. (laughs) Okay. All right. So my sources were Wikipedia, an article from longreads.com called Shelved, Van Morrison's Contractual Obligation Album, and then an article from Open Culture uh, called Three Outlandish Tracks from Van Morrison's 1968 Revenge Album. Okay. Okay. So let's just talk about Van Morrison. Like everyone knows who Van Morrison is. Brown-eyed girl. Uh, Brown-eyed girl. It's already built. He's kind of an interesting, like he straddles a lot of different like genres and stuff. So let's just kind of like talk about where he comes from. Okay. Um, so he was born George Ivan Morrison on August 31st, 1945 in Belfast. Okay. Um, he was the only child of George Morrison, a shipyard electrician, and Violet Stitt Morrison, who's a former singer and tap dancer. Um, mm. They were like working class Irish Protestants. They were like, like Ulster Scots you know okay i feel like the rain is so loud is it so loud <laughs> it's it's not that loud for me okay okay God. Um, okay sorry continue please <laughs> tap dancer so, yeah so they so they were like ulster scots very much like royalist monarchist okay. northern irish people i'm not sure that van morrison himself particularly is but like, wait are they irish or scottish well they're they're northern irish which is the whole ulster scots thing Okay, I see, I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they're definitely the Protestant side of the Irish Protestant Catholic 
schism. Got it. Um, George actually gained the nickname Van when he was a kid at Elm Grove Primary School in East Belfast. And then he got his love of music from his parents. Uh, so his mom, like I said, she was a singer ha- or had been a singer and a tap dancer. I think she was now just like a homemaker. And he was, by the way, an only child. So it sounds like they like put a lot of focus on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but his dad was also like a huge music fan and a record collector who he actually owned one of the largest record collections in all of Northern Ireland because apparently, yeah, apparently he had in the like early 1950s when I guess Van would have been a little kid. Um, his father, I think, went to Detroit maybe for work for a while and just started collecting like records from like uh, American blues and jazz. And you know, so like among the artists in his collection were Jelly Roll Morton, Ray Charles, Lead Belly, Solomon Burke, etc. This is at a time where this type of music is not particularly that well known in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so like as far as UK people go, like Van is getting in at the ground floor on okay. on, on this like American blues and roots music. Okay. Um, and he said, uh, if it weren't for guys like Ray and Solomon, I wouldn't be where I am today. Those guys were the inspiration that got me going. So because of this, his dad's record collection, he developed this really kind of idiosyncratic and diverse set of musical influences. Everything from like blues, like Lead Belly to gospel of Mahalia Jackson to the bebop of Charlie Parker, the folk of Woody Guthrie, and then country music like Hank Williams. So just like steeped in like, he's this Northern Irish kid who's just like steeped in kind of Americana. Um, and then his dad went and bought him his first guitar when he was 11 years old. And he started learning the simple chords uh, on the guitar from the songbook, The Carter Family Style. So it's like June Carter's family. Yeah, The Carter Family. Carter Family Fold. Shout out to where I just was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. So again, like Northern Irish kid in the early 50s, like just steeped in like American roots music. Then when he was 12 years old, he formed his first band. It was called Sputnik One. It was the same year that the Russians put Sputnik into space. Um, And then through his teen years, he just kind of, he went through like a bunch of like short-lived bands, including a skiffle band called Midnight Special. And I was like, what the hell is skiffle? Same. So I I looked it up. Um, It was a type of folk music that pulled its influences from blues, country, bluegrass, and jazz. It was something that originated in the U.S. in like the early 20th century. But by this point in the 1950s is when this stuff started becoming very popular in the U.K. So Skiffle is really like associated with the U.K. music scene. Hmm, Um, Like they just like it's interesting. Like when you read like the history of even like bands like Pink Floyd, like they were super inspired by the blues. Obviously Led Zeppelin and the Yardbirds, like this whole British english music scene was very 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 just pulling from american music like mm-hmm. crazy uh then when he was a teen van also learned to play the saxophone um i think he heard it on a record and was like that sounds fucking sexy as fuck so he he learned the tenor sax and he joined a band called Dini sands and the javelins and this was like kind of his first real band mm-hmm. he's still a teenager and in the band, like Van, I think this Dini Sands was like sort of meant to be the leader of the band, but it kind of sounds like Van Morrison took over because okay. he was just like the musical prodigy of the band. He was a multi instrumentalist. He played guitar and saxophone. He also sang backup vocals. Dini Sands was the main vocalist. I think at some point Dini was like fuck this and left the band, and then they became the Monarchs. Okay. Um, And the Monarchs was like his first kind of working band that he was in. But 
he had been raised in this very kind of working class environment. He was expected to get a quote real job. Mm -hmm. So he ended up getting a job as a window cleaner, um, which is something he actually alluded to a bunch in some of his later songs. But while he's working as a window cleaner, still playing with the Monarchs, he also played with a band called the Harry Mack Show Band. Uh, which was with his, an old friend of his named Georgie Spruill, who ended up being like one of his big, I think sounds like kind of like a mentor to him. I think he was, Georgie was older than Van. And then when Van was 17, the Monarchs had become successful enough that they went on their first tour of Europe, where they called themselves the International Monarchs. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then Van... Like I said, he was like the multi-instrumentalist. He played saxophone, he played guitar, harmonica, even like would fill in on bass and drums, kind of just depending on what was needed. Uh-huh. They would play at these like seedy back alley clubs. Mm -hmm. They played on U.S. Army bases. They often were playing like five nights a week. I mean, they were like a working band. Yeah. While in Germany, they recorded their first single, <laughs> which was called Boozoo Holly Gully Twingy Baby. So <laughs> there you go. That's too much. That's too much for a song title. Yeah. I mean, it's like pick an actual word. Like yes. one of the, I mean, I guess baby is an actual word, but like out of like five words there, only one of them is an actual word. That's it's a real like, word. Yeah. yeah that, that's a, that's too high of a gibberish to real word ratio for a right. song title. <laughs> but um, I also didn't become Van Morrison. So fuck, what do I know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe it was perfect. Yeah. I mean, it, does sound like it was a moderate success. They recorded it in November of 1963 in Cologne, mm -hmm. and it actually made it onto the German music charts. But like, it sounds like it was like kind of at the bottom of the charts, but still, it charted. You know, charted. And I think he's still like 17 or 18 at the time. Wow. So uh, they pretty much broke up immediately after recording the single. They recorded it in November of 1963 and broke up in November of 1963. Okay. Um, and then Too just bad. like fucked off back to Belfast. Okay. It really sounds like Van Morrison, like allegedly, don't want to speak ill of the not dead, but very old. Like, sounds like he's a real dick, kind of. Hmm, okay. Like, like just a real difficult person. So I, I'm guessing like, Part of why he's just like cycling through all these bands is that at a certain point, people are like, we can't work with him. Right. You're uh, not the only kid who can play five instruments. <laughs> right. <laughs> In off. Belfast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get out um, of here. So he goes back, he starts performing with this Georgie Spruill again. They formed a band called the Manhattan Show Band. They brought in a guitarist named Herbie Armstrong. And then with Armstrong, Van formed the first band that really kind of broke him as like a musician. So like mm -hmm. the band was called Them. It was named after the 1950s Big Bug Giant Ant movie. Okay. It didn't last very long. It was from like 1964 to 1966. Basically the, the way this band started was Van saw an ad for a local hotel called the Maritime Hotel in Belfast. They had just started a new R&B club at the hotel and they were looking for like an opening band, like on their, like, just like a house band, basically. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like this Maritime Hotel was like on the sketchy side. It was basically a hostel where like a lot of like American sailors and stuff would stay. Mm -hmm. So you can just kind of imagine, like, we're not talking the Ritz here, you know? Right. But Van, you know, he answered this ad, but then he ended up pretty much putting this band together from scratch. So he enlisted a bunch of people. I'm not going to list their names because it doesn't sound like any of them particularly stayed in the band very long. The only one was a guy named Alan Henderson. He was the one other constant in this band. Okay. Their first name was The Gamblers, but then they decided they needed a new name. So that's when they 
took the name them like i said van has already developing this reputation for being difficult and i think he's like maybe 19 at the time (laughs) um so like one of his bandmates a guy named jackie mccauley said uh quote there was one time van didn't say a word for three days he wouldn't even mumble that would just drive everybody mad yikes yeah (laughs) okay but they were really good band um, mm-hmm. And they started getting attention, like locally. These performances at the Maritime started becoming kind of renowned in Belfast. And one of the things was, like, they never had a set playlist. They would often just get up and kind of improvise the songs. Or they would have a song, but then would just, like, jam. This was, like, pre the jam band era, but they were basically a jam band. And one of their songs, which I'm going to drop in here in just a second, became their big hit was the song Gloria. Okay. Um, which, of course, I mean, I think most people probably have heard that song. Gloria is an interesting song because it's it's basically a garage rock song. And it's often pointed to as like one of the very, very first proto-punk songs. Like it was a big, ended up being a big influence on punk rock. Mm. Um, but when they would perform it at the Maritime, they would like stretch it out to like 20 minutes or a half hour long. Oh my God, um, that sounds yeah. like my worst fucking nightmare. I know, I know, because you you don't like seeing live music anyway. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I, I'm so sorry to everybody I know who's in a band, and I know that you all are wonderful and fantastic, and I will just cheer you on from the comfort of my own home. Right. <laughs> but like a 20-minute song, like... And if you've heard Gloria, it doesn't strike me that Gloria is a song that needs to be 20 minutes long. That's g-l-o-r-i-a-glow right yeah this is uh, another Gloria song um but yeah it's not like it's not like some bands like pink floyd they kind of earn their 20 minutes their half hour long songs (laughs) i mean i don't know even pink floyd i don't know if i'd want to go see them live and watch them do shine on you crazy diamond for 20 minutes but Mm -hmm. you know drive in in my car you know sure zenning (laughs) out to some floyd i say that i'd still be like (sighs) click next song i know well yeah you you have like no patience so (laughs) (laughs) Um, no patience for 20 minute songs real fast when i was picking out you know we pick out show music for the duke city rep shows and uh somebody who was in the company had gathered a bunch of songs and was like okay listen to like i i had tasked him like can you go and find songs this is kind of like the style that we're looking for and he brought me a playlist and was like okay here's what i've got (laughs) and i was like clicking through them like no no (laughs) no Eh. okay no (laughs) no and he was like you're not even listening to the songs and i was like i can tell from the first five seconds whether they're right or not like i'm not gonna listen to a seven minute song because it gets really good (laughs) and at the six and a half minute mark right (laughs) like (laughs) yeah no that's fair well particularly for that like context that's fair but like i mean the thing with like a band like pink floyd is like they're space rock you know, so it's sure. like, you know, lie down on the grass and watch a laser show for a half hour. You know, it, it, whether you're into it or not, it makes <laughs> yes. sense for that band. Yes. And that's that's just the thing is that I'm like literally not, the last thing I'd want to do in the world. Yeah, exactly. But it does <laughs> not rock make on for the people that do. Right. <laughs> it does not make sense for Gloria, which is like a three chord garage rocks. Yes. Song. That does not need to be 30 minutes long. But anyway, I think it was like pretty novel 
to watch a band do this and apparently they just had like a lot of energy on stage so like i said they were becoming like really kind of renowned in belfast Mm. uh van would later say he said that the band never managed to capture their live energy on any of their recordings Mm. um he said quote them lived and died on the stage at the maritime hotel and then he also said, them were never meant to be on top of the pops. I mean, miming, lip syncing. We used to laugh at the program, think it was a joke. Mm. Then we were on it ourselves. It was ridiculous. We were totally anti that type of thing. We were really into the blues and we had to get into suits and have makeup put on and all of that. So like already, like dude's like 20 years old and he's just like a grumpy old man. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Great musician. I love Van Morrison, but does not seem like someone I particularly would want to hang out with. Yeah. So like I said, the band was going through just constant lineup changes. Uh, Van and Alan Henderson were the only people who were the constants in the band. Uh, Eventually, they caught the attention of a guy named Dick Rowe at Decca Records. And Decca was like kind of the hot label in Mm -hmm. England at the time. And he signed them to a standard two-year contract. And so in that window of like 1964 to 1965, they put out two albums and 10 singles. And some of the singles, obviously, Gloria. Gloria was actually the B-side to uh, the single Baby Please Don't Go. Also the song Here Comes the Night and Mystic Eyes. They ended up being kind of like caught up in this whole British invasion time Mm -hmm. period. So they were actually sent over to the united states for like a one month tour in june of 1966 okay um one of the venues they played at was whiskey a go-go in la where their opening band was the doors Hmm, okay yeah and it turns out like i guess van morrison was like a big influence on jim morris um so a guy yeah (laughs) no relation there's a british musicologist a guy named brian hinton and he said jim morrison learned quickly from his near namesakes stagecraft his apparent recklessness his air of subdued menace the way he would improvise poetry to a rock beat even his habit of crouching down by the bass drum during instrumental breaks Hmm. what's interesting to me about this quote like the air of subdued menace you know improvising poetry to to the rock beat etc all this kind of pops up on the revenge songs but in like a fucked up way Okay. So their last night playing at the whiskey, they did another extended version of Gloria, and Jim Morrison actually got on stage and performed with them. So, hmm. like, whether you want a 20 minute version of that song, that would have been like a piece of history to see, mm-hmm. you know? But as the tour was wrapping up, the band, they were fighting amongst themselves. They also started fighting with their manager, a guy named Phil Solomon at Decca Records. It was all about unpaid royalties, you know, mm. the typical story. Um, so by the time they got back to Belfast, they were just like, fuck it, and they broke up. Okay. And that's when Van started working on his solo material. Interestingly, the band Them actually reformed without him and moved to America in 1967. And I think kind of didn't, they put out a few singles, but it was like, without Van Morrison, no one was really interested. Yeah. Like, he was clearly the guy. Right. So they break up. Van's like, what the fuck do I do now? And a guy named Burt Burns reaches out to him. Burt Burns had actually produced their records for Decca. He wrote the song Here Comes the Night, which was one of their singles. He was described in the press uh, one time as, quote, reeking of Paul Mall's cheap cologne and hit records. He was already a well-known songwriter and producer. He wrote the songs Hang On Sloopy, Twist and Shout, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. So, like, you know, it was like the real deal in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Does not mean he wasn't a shady motherfucker, though. Okay. Um, so he reached out to Van and he was like, I'm starting a new record label. It's called Bang Records. It's in, I think Burt Burns was an American. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, we're based in New York. You should come over to New York and record for us. And Van was like, cool. So Burt 
sends over a contract. Van doesn't read it. He gets paid $2,500. Come on, buddy. Like, I think not even as an advance. I think it was like $2,500 was what he was paid and basically gave up all the rights to the songs. And I think he was like locked into this contract for like an extended period of time. For 13 million years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So over a two-day session in New York, he recorded eight songs. The whole plan, as far as Van understood it, was that these songs were just going to be released as singles. They were going to put out four singles, each with a main song and like an A-side and a Mm -hmm. B-side. And that was going to be that. He said, I showed up for a session and 40 people are there. Four guitar players, four keyboard players, five singers, four entire rhythm sections. It was bizarre because he was like very much. I mean, he was like kind of a garage rock blues guy. Like, so he's like, yeah. why do we need all this? You yeah. Know? Um, but they record the music. He was like, all right, peace out. And he fucked off back to Belfast and he didn't really plan to come back unless one of the songs was, was a hit. Okay. Well, instead of releasing them as singles, like he had expected, Burt Burns decided to put them together as an album, which he called Blowing Your Mind, <laughs> which he just put out without even telling Van that he was going. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> I, sh- I just wanted to show you the album cover. Okay. Because this was one of the like big sticking points. Apparently, Van was not happy about this. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. I mean, it's just like the most like cheese ball bullshit. Like it's this really unflattering low angle shot of him. That's just and like a bunch of double chin and sweat. And it just, it looks like he's like village of the damned, like black eyes. Right. <laughs> exactly. With the this like weird swirly brown it looks like an an anemone or something it looks like he's in the middle of an anemone i feel like it looks like he's surrounded by poop like it just looks like like ropes you only think that because it looks brown (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and then it's got like weird like kind of 60s weird like bubbly letters and then it's yeah it's like psychedelic blowing your mind yeah so that's van morrison's first album it's bad van was not happy he was also not happy with the liner notes which were um they read quote and van blows and van sings and van screams and van listens and van says up them all and becomes van and what the hell that's his friend and now he can live with himself this lp is van morrison we won't explain it to you. Will this one go for yourself? Why don't so, you again, go for yourself? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they're tr- this is like clearly <laughs> some like record exec just being like, we need a lot of attitude to get the hippies. What? And it, it's just frack. Yeah, it just it's gibberish. It doesn't um, make any sense. So Van's real pissed off about this. Understandable. He, uh, and like I said, he wasn't even told that the album was coming out. He was only aware of the album when a friend called him and said, hey, I just bought your album. And so he said, quote, I got a call saying it was an album coming out. and This is the cover. And I saw the cover and I almost threw up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so not not a happy camper. Not looking creatives. Right? I almost threw up. <laughs> OK, Relax. yeah, he does seem like a fairly melodramatic person <laughs> just in general. But if I was him and that was my first album, I would not be happy with that. I mean, I'd be I'd definitely be pissed. But right. then I'd also be like, where was the, like, wh- where is all this stuff? And then I'd look at my contract that I didn't read and go, oh, yeah, that's exactly. where it is. Exactly. In a contract that I didn't read. 
Right. <laughs> which is why you always read your contracts. Even when yeah. people are like, just go ahead and sign it. This is just so that we can go just put up one finger. Here's a life lesson. Here's the weirdest thing. Life lesson for everybody. <laughs> just give them, give them the finger. Hold on, please. The one the your pointer finger, hold on, please. And mm. then read the NAM contract. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, he learned, he learned his lesson. From oh that. my God. It just so happened that one of the songs was a little song called Brown Eyed Girl. Hey, I know that song. Apparently, originally was supposed to be called Brown Skinned Girl. Yeah, my brown skinned girl. Mm. Yeah. It's a little weird. (laughs) It's a little weird. Also, like to have like a pasty Irish guy singing that seems like maybe not the best idea but you know um i mean i'm not trying to get into like you know i'm not trying to tell him that he's got to like you know we're not like miscegenation folks over here but right I think no, just, just just written wise brown skinned girl it, it, may, maybe that's our 2022 sensibility where right. we're like ooh, it's, not, yeah i read weird. that and i just kind of i just made the thing, yeah so. yeah i mean i don't think i mean i certainly don't think there's anything meant to be racist or malicious about it but i think smartly somebody was like you know what why don't we change it to brown why don't we girl? change it to brown eyed girl so it was released as a single in june of 1967 ended up being his biggest hit it reached number 10 on the u.s charts and it stayed there for 16 weeks um apparently someone did an evaluation in 2015 of all the music downloads since 2004 and all the like radio airplay since 2010 and they determined that by far brown eyed girl is at least by today's standards to Mm -hmm. today's audiences brown eyed girl is the most popular song of the entire 1960s um it's like the most downloaded and most played Wow. Um, It was also listed as number 21 on Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest pop songs and number 40. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good song. Number 49 on VH1's list of the 100 greatest rock songs. Mm -hmm. In 2007, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And mm. it's not my favorite Van Morrison song. I think my favorite would be Moondance, but mm. it's a good, mine's it's a good Into song. the Mystic. That's a good one. Yeah, that's another good one. But, you know, so that's great. He's got a big hit, but he's not happy about how the album had been released without any input. Also, he's not really getting paid. I'll get to that in a second. And he fully planned to like call up Burt Burns and be like, Burt, what the fuck? And Burt promptly died on it. <laughs> Sorry, that is not. <laughs> not where you thought that was going. <laughs> that is not where it <laughs> Yeah, no, apparently Bert, uh, he'd had a childhood. I think he'd had like rheumatic fever when he was a kid uh-huh. and it caused like congenital heart problems. So he just like <sighs> died. He just died. He just oh died. God. Okay. Um, and so Bert, who was the guy who had like sought out Van, um, uh-huh. who had like all these big plans for Van, he's dead. And the rest of the record label apparently is a bunch of mobsters. So this is, I told you, I almost went down a whole rabbit hole today. Mm. At some point, I should do the history of Bang Records because it sure sounds interesting. Shady. Okay. I mean, it's like, we've all heard the stories of Death Row Records in the 90s and the shit they were up to. Sounds like Bang was kind of doing some of the same stuff. Interesting. (laughs) Um, So after Burt died, Van's new contact at the label was a guy named Carmine DeNoia, who the FBI classified as, quote, a low-level mobster 
Donoya ended up being convicted in the 1970s, like during all the payola scandals of that okay. time period. So just a couple of the things that um, Donoya did. During the Brown Eyed Girl record release party in 1967, they were out on a boat on the Hudson River. And I could not find the context of why this happened. But apparently Donoya threw Tiny Tim overboard into <laughs> the Hudson River. <laughs> so there's that. Another time, Van. Hold was, on, Tiny yeah. Tim. Tiny Tim, like yeah, with, with the... the little like t- 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 <laughs> okay mandolin, just okay. got just dunked in the fucking Hudson for have, some reason. Real fast, I'm so sorry to interject, <laughs> but have I told you the Tiny Tim story? I don't think so. Okay, I don't remember how it came up, but this was. I mean, I mean, it had to have been like over 20 years ago at this point, me and my middle brother were at my folks house. And I think it was when, I think it was whenever it was whenever tiny Tim died mm. and, you know, it came on the news of like tiny Tim has died and blah, blah, blah. And my brother was like, who the hell is tiny Tim? <laughs> <laughs> Mom, I can hear my mom's going, don't tell this story. Um, <laughs> so my brother goes, who the hell is tiny Tim? My mom goes, he was these men who would play these little guitar and he would go, wee, wee. and my brother goes thank god he died (laughs) (laughs) oh i mean knowing your brother i'm not surprised by that comment at all <laughs> i like i laughed so hard i was like i have to, i have to go upstairs and change my pants because i'm laughing so hard I'm, I'm peeing in my pants like it was the fu- like just the one two combination of my sweet mom's impression of tiny tim <laughs> followed by my brother saying thank god he died it was just too much yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Okay, sorry. Continue. Okay, so dude, um, well, don't Tiny Tim. I was going to say your mom. Your mom's description of Tiny Tim was not wrong. It's not incorrect. Is unfortunately accurate. the thing. It was <laughs> yeah. also yeah. It was also a, a pretty dang accurate impression of him. Right. <laughs> sorry, sorry to that man. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but well, he ended up in the Hudson River for some okay. reason. <laughs> Another time, Van, who again, <laughs> like Van, like had a temper. Apparently, also liked uh, liked to drink, and was apparently not afraid of mobsters because he start he got drunk and started drunkenly like screaming at Denoya, probably about contract mm-hmm. stuff or something. So Denoya just grabbed an acoustic guitar and smashed it over Van Morrison's head. Ouch. Okay. Yeah. So that's. Okay. That's who you're dealing with here. At okay. Records. Van hadn't realized when he signed this contract that Bang was essentially bankrolled by the mafia. Mm. Like when Bert was starting the label, he apparently he was a connected guy mm-hmm. um, and uh, got his mob friends to front the money. And they essentially like and then at some point he was like, I need a total control of the music rights and they were like oh go fuck yourself it's our record mm-hmm. label so they took control of the label he was partnered with a guy named jerry wexler who if you know anything of music history jerry wexler is a big name songwriter producer and that's why i said this was a whole rabbit hole you could go down yeah. um to essentially get control of the record label uh, i think this is maybe right after burt died they went to jerry wexler and threatened to break the legs of his 14 year old daughter so this is who Van Morrison is like dealing with now. 
Okay. So here's a quote from uh, Burt Burns' son, Brett. He says, my mother would say, I never want you to think your father was a gangster. I had no idea what she was talking about, but he was the most mobbed up guy other than <laughs> Sinatra. <laughs> That's his son saying that. Yeah. He's like, okay, mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Bert dies. They put out this album. They're not paying him his royalties. Van's real mad. Mm-hmm. He wants out of this contract and he gets into a contract dispute with Bert's widow, Eileen, who I'm sure is like, we can't let our cash cow go because mm. like the mob may be mad if we do that. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's maybe not piss off the mob. So right. it ends up in this big legal battle and Van ends up being prohibited from performing on stage or recording anywhere in the New York area. He also is, sounds like was being threatened by the mob. Mm. Where they were like, get your shit together, like we own you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he went up to Boston, which I'm I'm like, Boston's not that far, but okay. He went up to Boston to basically get away from the mob and just hung out there. He couldn't find a lot of concert bookings. He was running out of money. He's not mm. getting paid for Brown Eyed Girl. He starts really like slipping into this depression. But he manages to get a few shows up in Boston. And through that, he starts forming a relationship with Warner Brothers. So uh, Warner Brothers Records. Mm-hmm. So now we're to the Revenge songs. Okay. So Warner Brothers agreed to buy out Van's bank contract for $20,000. It's about 180000 by today's standards. I'm going to get back to that $20,000 buyout okay. in a second. But part of the deal, like Bang still, they weren't letting Van off the hook. And they inserted a clause into the buyout agreement that required him to give them 36 original songs within the year. Um, okay. And so they're like, we fucking showed him like we still own you motherfucker but van's like you didn't say they have to be good nope who's not reading the contract now <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. exactly so van's like cool 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 in 1968 he grabs a purposefully out of tune guitar and in a single session knocks out 36 songs wow so these are the revenge songs <clears throat> among the titles are the big royalty check blowing your nose ringworm etc so i'm just gonna play these songs are super short they're all like a minute long okay so i'm just going to uh go ahead and play some of these because i just you, you need to you need to experience the revenge songs okay let's uh listen to ringworm i can see by the look on your face that you've got ringworm I'm very sorry, but I have to tell you that you've got ringworm. (laughs) It's a very common disease. Actually, you're very lucky to have Ringworm, because you may have <laughs> had something else. Ooh, 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 ooh
right. So that's ringworm. Let's, that uh, sounds like when I go to go see improv shows here and they have to do musical improv. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's essentially what this was. I think it he was just making this like shit it. up. Yeah. Please don't make me listen to all of these songs the whole no. way through. <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, but you do need to hear uh, You Say France and I Whistle. You say France and I'll whistle. You say France, and I'll whistle. I'll whistle, you say France. No, you say France, and I'll whistle. No, no, you whistle, I'll say France. <laughs> no, no, you say France, and I'll whistle. So, got the idea there. <laughs> That's the whole that, time. That one little wh- beginning of a whistle. Yeah. <laughs> no, you... We'll just do like one more. Uh, okay. Wanda Danish is pretty good. It's just about like whether he wants a Danish or a sandwich. Okay. Uh, but let's actually listen to Here Comes Dumb George. Here come 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 Dumb George. Everybody together in the chorus. <laughs> Here come dumb joy. <laughs> Here come dumb joy. Boogaloo. 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 <laughs> Here come dumb joy. He'll do this thing on the songs where, where like he'll just be singing some nonsense. He'll be like, break it down. <laughs> Suck it to me. <laughs> like, wow. What I enjoy about the Revenge album is that uh, he's clearly kind of having fun. <laughs> and it's very much a middle finger to Bang Records. Yes, clearly. Yeah. So, and and just keep in mind, there's 36 of those. 36 um, songs. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so that's what he gave to Bang Records. Okay. So Bang, unsurprisingly, immediately shelved them and like very annoyed, basically, were like, I don't know, uh, Van, these songs seem pretty unreleasable. And he's like, uh-huh. So that was it. That was uh, he fulfilled his like 36 song mm-hmm. obligation. They remained unreleased until 2017 when they were included on a big compilation of Van Morrison songs called The Authorized Bang Collection. It's disc three, which is the contractual obligation album. So that's what I was just playing for you. Oh my God. Okay. So this is from that Long Reads article. They say, although clearly not releasable at the time they were made, the Revenge of Wur, of Wur, I can never remember that word. Uvra gives us a window into the music industry of the late 60s and the stormy artist's temperament. It's as if we just discovered Michelangelo's diary from 1508, featuring a profane caricature of Pope Julius II, who bullied him into painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Does it compare to his proper work? Not at all. <laughs> no. But how do you think the mob uh, reacted? to this i would guess not well not not super well it sounds like yeah so actually the person who finally got him out of the contract was a guy named joe smith who was an executive at warner brothers uh who ironically was not a big van morrison fan or at least not a fan of him as like a human being it mm. like. wow okay. so he had this to say he said morrison was a hateful little guy his live performance he may as well have been in philadelphia 
there's no action from him, but his voice, I still think he's the best rock and roll voice out there. Mm. There are points when he seemed certifiable. He was so angry at everybody and everything with no grace or charm. Mm. Uh, so that's that's uh, his big advocate over at Warner Brothers. So Joe Smith, he ends up going to a guy named Joe Scandori. Joe Scandori was an entertainment manager. He was actually Don Rickles' manager. Okay. And like a lot of these uh, guys in the time period, also was mobbed up, was mob connected. Okay. And so Joe Smith is goes to Skandori and he's like, can you help me like square shit up with the mob? So Skandori does the like reach out, sets it up, sets up a meeting. And so um, this is what Smith said. This is the $20,000 payment to get out of the um, contract. Okay. He says, quote, I had to walk up three flights of stairs and there were four guys, two tall and thin, two built like buildings. There was no small talk. I got the signed contract and got the hell out of there because I was afraid somebody <clears throat> would whack me in the head and take back the contract and I'd be out the money. So that is the story of the revenge songs. <laughs> Now, of course, Van Morrison, his next album was considered by many people to be his masterpiece, Astral Weeks, mm-hmm. um, which I just listened to for the first time, like maybe a week ago. It's, mm-hmm. it's real fucking good. It's mm-hmm. real weird. It's it's definitely one of his weirder albums. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, in the 70s, he put out albums like Moondance. He became like massive star. You know, the Van Morrison we all know and love. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. these Songs were just sitting on a shelf somewhere until 2017. That's so weird. He graced us with their their being. <laughs> just so, like, you know what? Release yeah. it. Release it. I think it was the story apparently was like very well known. Like people knew this was hap- this had happened. So I think at a certain point he was like, might as well. People know, people know what this is. So we put it out. Um, yeah, I can get after you've become Van Morrison being right. like, yeah, fuck it, release it. Right. And I also understand being like essentially at the beginning of your career and you're just like, I'm a worm. Right. <laughs> you know, whatever the hell. <laughs> yeah. I What I love about it is I, I think it's what I've always liked about Van Morrison, even though like he does sound like kind of an asshole. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's this R&B He's kind of thought of as like this R&B singer, sort of sort of R&B, folky, somewhat rock and roll, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he had just a real snarly, fearless, go fuck yourself attitude. And it sounds like he's had that his whole career. His whole, yeah, his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And so to like do that when like the mob is breathing down your neck, yeah. I think is pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> For real. Yeah. So there you awesome. go. That's that's the story of uh, Van Morrison's revenge song. Awesome. Uh, well, speaking of assholes, today <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of the Great California Comedy Rush and the 1979 Comedy Store Strike. Ooh. Um, sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia, the book I'm Dying Up Here, Heartbreak and High Times in Stand-Up Comedy's Golden Era by William Needlecedar. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. The Comedy Store, a Showtime docuseries by Mike Binder. The LA Times, Britannica, BuzzFeed, thecomedystore.com, ranker.com, and cracked.com. Okay, so uh, prior to the 1970s, like you and Danielle touched on in the episode, The Man Who Talked About His Father, Uh stand-up comedy had been living in the realm of like minstrel shows, vaudeville, and like you mentioned, Scotty, the Borscht Belt. Right. Bob Hope and other Borscht Belt performers set up this like kind of classic style of 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 comedy, um, a detached. I always, I always forget the Bob Hope like came out of the Borscht Belt. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was a sort of like detached mechanical style of, of joke telling, like right. it was, you know, set up punchline, set up punchline. Right, right. And that style of joke telling really dominated pop culture well into the television age. But in the 1950s, we started to see comedians like Mort Saul delivering not gag mm. lines, but this like caustic commentary on political leaders, pop culture, and like the pillars of respectability of like the conservative right. 19. 1950s. So comedy is starting to shift from this joke punchline format to something that is more observational, absurdist, sociopolitical. Mm-hmm. As the 1970s started, the boomer generation, so as much as we want to be like, okay, boomer, <laughs> the boomer generation turned their attention to comedy as the next counterculture entertainment form because they'd already done it with music. They were like, right. we're moving towards something else. We don't want to listen to like our fucking parents, big band music. We want something else. Right. So this was um, like Lenny Bruce and Carlin and Richard Pryor. And uh, yeah. Them. And like Lenny Bruce had already was already doing his thing in the 60s. Uh-huh. But yeah, like as, as we're moving into it, you start getting George Carlin, Richard Pryor's, etc. Uh, one of the clearest signals that comedy was changing was that the audience and comedy clubs started to become younger mm-hmm. and places where that was happening was places like the improv. So a quick side note about the improv it is now a chain including uh an la location but it started out as a single venue in hell's kitchen it was originally opened by a guy named bud freeman who i saw was an actor and a writer but i also saw that like i think he used to be like a madman like he was like an advertising dude interesting um anyways it was opened by this dude bud friedman as an after hours coffee house and you said in in hell's kitchen in Hell's in Kitchen. The, in the 70s. So this in is like the 70s. Hell's Kitchen. It is Hell's Kitchen. Right. Yes. So we opened it as this sort of like after hours coffee shop where Broadway performers would come and they would like wind down after the shows. And he had an open mic where, you know, singers could get up there and sing a little something and comedians started showing up. And so like a singer would go on and then a comedian would go up and he'd like okay. work out you know, he would start like working out his material. When The Tonight Show was still in New York City, talent scouts from The Tonight Show would go to the improv to scout new acts. Uh And by the 1970s, the improv was a full-blown comedy club. Like the Broadway performers were gone. It was, it was, it was comedy. The following is from Wikipedia. The improv was the place to see Richard Pryor, Robert Klein, Steve Landisberg, Bette Midler, Lily Tomlin, Jay Leno, and others when they were just Starting out, Dustin Hoffman played the piano there. Often wow. famous comedians would walk in to work out before appearances before appearances on The Tonight Show. Uh-huh. Um, and it was not unusual to find celebrities in the audience. No. At the time, the improv did not pay its comics because when this started, Fried, like Friedman had to take out a loan to open the place. Yeah. So he didn't have any money to pay anybody, but later on when he did have the money, not paying the comics just kind of was a tradition. Um, and everybody who performed mm. there really saw it like not as an actual nightclub, but a gym where you could get in shape and work out your material to get yeah. into the big game, which was the tonight show. Right. I am not going to get into the history of the tonight show because it's uh-huh. long and it's a bunch of dudes. Uh, so I'm not going to get super into it. You can look it up on Wikipedia if you want. But what you do need to know is that when Johnny Carson took that show over, he became the arbiter 
of comic worth. Yeah. If he liked your stuff and you ended up on his show, the world was your oyster. You might end up with like high paying gigs in Vegas, or you could be opening for rock bands on tour. If Carson didn't like you, you were left to try to eke out a living playing small clubs wherever you could get gigs. Wasn't the whole thing like for the comics? I think Mark Marin has talked about this. Like you would you would go to the to Nitro, you would do your whatever five minutes, and what you wanted was for Carson to like call you. We're gonna talk about that in a second. Okay. Yeah. Um, So in 1972, The Tonight Show announced that it would be moving from its home in New York City to sunny Burbank, California. Uh And comics were honestly like distraught. Yeah. Because, but yeah, they were moving from like Indiana and Boston and Pennsylvania to New York City to try to get their shot at getting on The Tonight Show. And all of a sudden, The Tonight Show is like, bye and Uh and moves 3000 miles away. And they're all like, what, like, what do we do about this? Um, Scotty, I told you this the other night, but I was wrong. So I'm going to do like a self-correction. The tonight show moved to California because they were like, we can actually do a lot better if we start getting like movie stars and. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. On the show, because up to that point, it had been New York creative. So it had been like Broadway actors, singers, dancers, novelists journalists so that's when like okay that's interesting because i know that like they used to have like norman mailer would be on the tonight show and stuff and so that would have been that like new york era yeah yeah okay so april of 1972 a borscht belt comic by the name of sammy shore opens Uh a 99 seat comedy club on sunset strip in a portion of what used to be (laughs) ciro's nightclub ciro's was a famous hollywood nightclub in the 1930s and 40s i believe warner brother like released an animated series but like the goings-on at ciro's frank sinatra got arrested there because he punched out a journalist like you know hollywood with a capital h the history of Ciro's and its connections to the mob are a whole other episode in and of itself. So that's all I'm going to say right. about it. But Sammy Shore and his partner, Rudy DeLuca, opened up this little club and they were like, like they opened it up, but they were like, so what should we call it? You know, and they were, they were like the fun spot. No, that doesn't really sound good. Sammy Shore's club. That's kind of meh. Yeah. They're having this conversation at Sammy Shore's home. And from the kitchen, Sammy's wife, Mitzi, calls out, why don't you call it the comedy store? Mm-hmm. And boom, the most recognizable go. name in comedy was right. born. So this was the business model for the comedy store in the beginning. Sammy didn't really pay rent to the building owner. Uh-huh. He like might split what was left over from cover charges and drinks after expenses. Like it was all right. really like, oh, like who, who knows? Profit really wasn't of interest to Sammy because he, he really just wanted a place where he and his other comic friends could hang out and entertain each other when they were home from their real gigs on the road. Sure. This quote is from I'm dying up here quote. The comedy store was riotous, free form fun in those early days. No one, not even sure knew who would be performing on any given night. It all depended on who was in town and happened to walk in the door. It might be anyone from Norm Crosby to Buddy Hackett to Jackie Vernon or a dozen other shore contemporaries. 
Flip Wilson showed up regularly, arriving in his blue rolls and awarding a $100 bill to the evening's ugliest comic. Red <laughs> Fox was the biggest star on TV at the time with his Sanford and Son sitcom, oh, yeah. so he got extra special treatment. Whenever Red came around, Sammy immediately cleared the stage for him to go on. Fox could do an hour off the top of his head and often did. Shore wow. never cut him off. So the culture at the comedy store is really loose. If the night yeah. was going well, Sammy kept it going. He'd stop letting people in and he'd send the bartenders home at like the legal closing time of 2 a.m. But they right. would frequently keep on going until at least 5 a.m. in the morning. Sure. Comics would be like going behind the bar and like pouring themselves drink. They didn't pay for anything. And Sammy was just like, what fun? We're all so funny. So it's like a clubhouse, basically. I mean, it, yeah, it's it, it like really that's that's kind of what's going on here. Right. When the Tonight Show headed to L.A., East Coast comics started popping in to test their material for West Coast audiences before they appeared on Carson. And uh -huh. the talent, I'm sorry, the Tonight Show talent coordinator, Jim McCauley, would drop in, you know, a couple of times a week to check out who was up there. On December 6th, 1973, a young Hungarian Puerto Rican comic who had recently appeared at the comedy store made his debut on The Tonight Show. Mm. Carson introduced him as a young comedian who's been appearing here in town at the comedy store. The kid did an engaging five-minute set, and wow. Carson was so pleased that he waved the young comic okay. over to take a seat on the couch and chat. And that is how 19-year-old Freddie Prince became the first comic ever to be asked to have a sit down okay. chat with Carson after his performance. Yeah. Cause that became like the brass ring. Like, that was what yeah. you were aiming for. And right. it, Freddie, and like, it talks about how like a bunch of people were watching him, like in the kitchen of the comedy store uh -huh. and they were watching him and Carson called him over and everybody was like, Oh what the my fuck? God. <laughs> yeah. They like lost yeah. their minds. Oh man. Hey man. Huh? This is something. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. You know, there's no greater thrill for me personally to have somebody come out here who's, who's unknown and stand up in front of an audience and absolutely wipe them out the first appearance uh, coast to coast. That's great. You're going to do fine, really. A lot of people have started on this show. Thank and you. you can always sense when there's, there's something there that the audience likes them right away. Yeah. They got to like you. You can do a lot of guys come out and do comedy and they say, oh, I don't like him. He's funny, but we don't like him. You got you got that nice empathy with the audience. Thank you very much. Delighted to have you here. Thank we'll take a break. We're coming right back. From that appearance on The Tonight Show, NBC signed Prince to star in the title role of a new sitcom, Chico and the Man. Right. This is also from uh, I'm Dying Up Here. Quote, the next time anyone saw Freddie at the improv, he was climbing out of a limo wearing a purple velvet suit, two babes <laughs> on his arms, high on quaaludes and headed uh, for big trouble. Yep. Just Three years after the incredible first performance on The Tonight Show, Prince would die from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, yeah. leaving behind his less than one-year-old son and eventual Burkenio, Freddie Prince Jr. Right, right. Yeah, because um, Freddie Prince wasn't from Albuquerque. Like, Freddie Prince Jr. ended up here afterwards, right? He was, he was born in Los Angeles. Okay. But, like... I don't know how quickly after his mom got pregnant with him, her and Freddie Prince divorced. Okay. But yeah, he, he was like 10 months old, 11 months old 
Wow. Uh, when his father died and then his mom moved them to Albuquerque. Okay. Uh, an interesting side note, Freddie's grandfather told Freddie Prince Jr.'s grandfather told him, you need to go out and you need to become a success so you can fix what your father fucked up. Ooh. And so Freddie Prince Jr. was like, oh, OK, well, then I guess I'll become an actor. That, that's that's a bunch of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. It's yeah. a lot of pressure. I mean, he yeah, did it. He did. And yeah. funnily enough. Um, he doesn't talk about his dad a lot, but there is a documentary by what is his name? Kevin something. He was in the usual suspects. He's also on the marvelous, marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Kevin. No, it's not Kevin. Is uh, it Kevin? Kevin Pollock. Yes. Yeah. He made this. I was like Kevin Spacey. Not at all. No. Um, okay. He made this movie called this like documentary movie called Misery Loves Comedy. Mm. Um, and it's one of the few places Freddie Prince Jr. talks about his father. And he so he's talking about this and he says, you know, the thing that his grandfather told him and, you know, that he's like, OK, so I'll become an actor. And he's like, and Neil Patrick Harris is at my high school uh-huh. getting people excited about acting. And so I was like, oh, I can do this. Funny thing is that Freddie Prince Jr. and Neil Patrick Harris went to my high school yeah um so there we go and like okay. not that much before you probably. no no yeah. um freddie prince either graduated when i was a freshman or the year before i became a freshman uh-huh. it's something like that yeah. um okay so the tragic story the the whole thing with freddie prince is is yeah you know like i mentioned he was high on quaaludes he was deeply into cocaine he was like a lot of comics dealing with pretty severe depression sure. um and you know met, met this like very tragic end and it would not by a long shot be the last tragic tale to come out of the comedy store but yeah before we get into that at the end of 1973 sammy shore is trying to figure out what to do with the comedy store because he mm-hmm. needs to actually get back to vegas to fulfill his contract where he'd been opening for elvis oh okay and deluca can't really you know take over day-to-day running of the club because he's writing for the carol burnett show okay so Sammy's like, well, what the hell do I do with this club? And he was like, well, I think the only person who can really do this is Mitzi. Mm-hmm. Now, Mitzi is this, you know, she's this, um, <laughs> where does she grow up? Minnesota. And she was always like, I was the only Jew in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's ambitious, smart. She's like kind of a bohemian. She's got this right. piercing nasal voice and this like deep love and fascination for comics. Mm-hmm. So he was like, well, I. I think Mitzi's like kind of the only logical choice. Yeah. And she wasn't a comic herself, right? No, she was not. Okay. No, not at all. Which leads us into the Mitzi years. Mitzi took to running the club like a duck to water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Under Sammy's reign, which was a, which was dictated by a whoever's famous goes on first mentality, the growing number of young comics who showed up night after night, they never got a break because <coughs> they were constantly getting bumped for the big name for the big names that came in. Right. But Mitzi looked at these kids and she saw not only a potential to cultivate new talent, she also saw a workforce. Sure. So she paid these kids $2.50 an hour to redecorate the club wall-to-wall and floor-to-ceiling black Hmm. uh, with a single spotlight lighting the stage to focus the audience's attention on the comics. Mm -hmm. She took the bar out of the main room and put it back by the kitchen so that patrons couldn't go get their own drinks. They had to order from cocktail waitresses who would bring the drinks to the bar. I'm sorry, bring the drinks to the table from the bar. She installed a two drink minimum. And apparently she was, if not the first, one of the first places to be like, you got to buy two drinks. So she's really like professionalizing the whole thing. She's professional. Yeah, she's professional 
professionalizing it. She's streamlining it. She made Mondays a potluck night, which is essentially an open mic night where any comic could get up and try out for a few minutes. Uh She instituted nightly lineups, giving the new kids five minute slots early in the night when there were fewer people and moving to increasingly polished and longer sets as the night went on and the crowd got bigger. Right. She did two shows a night and cleared out the joint between shows to make room for another paying audience. So she would like let people in, they would see a show and then she was like, get the fuck out and bring in a whole other group of people and do that. Um, So they're making more and more money. Her shows were efficiently run with an MC and there was an amber light that would flash when the performers had a minute that was basically like wrap it up. Uh Yeah, I think that amber light is pretty famous. I've heard comics talk about that. Yeah, yeah. She made comics check in with the club, uh, I think like on Monday nights to see when their slots would be for the week. And she expected the whole damn thing to run on time, which it did. Uh-huh. Instead of a freewheeling evening of comics interspersed with some music acts or whatever like that, like that, that's the way it was done being done in New York City at the Improv. Right. Mitzi was running a tightly produced night of back to back comics. Mm-hmm. She additionally had spent so much time watching them that she knew their styles and their material and she scheduled them as such. She like I said, she was responsible for every single night's lineup so Uh that the show would build and build and build to the big finish. Right. She said, quote, you have to produce the show. You can't just let it happen. Yeah. So Mitzi's running a real tight ship, but the one thing she doesn't change is Sammy's policy of not paying the comics. According to her, even though this was a far cry from the laid back (coughs) way, Sammy ran the place. It was still a place for comics to find an opportunity and workshop their material. They were not her employees. She was not their boss, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So in like a month or so, Sammy comes back from Vegas and he's like, where the fuck is my club? You know, he's not mad, but he was like, whoa, this is nothing. This is totally a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different than how I left it. And he realizes like much to his chagrin that Mitzi had finally found a purpose in life and that there was no getting the club back from her. Uh (laughs) the two actually ended up starting divorce proceedings just a few months later and mitzi ended up with the club and the house on doheny drive Uh this is not the house that would end up being known as crest hill that's a different house okay yeah it was like in the lawyer that she got was actually the lawyer who established the idea of palimony and Mitzi was basically like, if you give me the club, I'll lower the alimony that you have to pay. And he was like, uh, fine. Okay. So that's how Mitzi got the club. Yeah. Um, so before Mitzi took over the comedy store, Vegas and New York were the epicenters of comedy in the U.S. Sure. But between Mitzi and Johnny Carson moving to L.A., this tectonic shift was happening that would leave L.A. as the undisputable home to stand up comedy from that point on. Another person who was instrumental in this shift was Richard Pryor. Mm, Right, right. Richard Pryor had been a quote middling success as a kind of non-threatening Bill Cosby imitator until depending on what source you look at either 1967 or 1970 when he was doing a show in Vegas and he stopped in the middle of his set, looked at the audience and said, what the fuck am I doing here? here and then he Uh, walked off 
Wow. Apparently he disappeared from mainstream, from like the mainstream comedy scene for a few years. He was writing. He was, I think he was doing some stuff in some movies. <laughs> I think he may have recorded a couple of comedy albums in this time, but he was like really, really like working on, like he was honing his comedy skills and he was moving into something very, very different. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I watched um, a documentary on HBO max about George Carlin, mm-hmm. not long before uh, Danielle and I recorded actually. And Carlin had a very similar trajectory. And if you look at like, I think you can find clips on YouTube of like early Carlin and early uh, Richard Pryor. And it is, it, it's like, it's back to like kind of the anodyne Borscht belt, you know, very mm-hmm. safe humor. And then within like a decade, what those guys turned into is just, it's an amazing shift. Yeah. Yeah. So he disappears from the mainstream comedy scene for a few years before bursting back onto the scene with the release of his 1974 album, which would go on to be a top 40 album. I am not going to name the album here. If mm-hmm. you want to know what it is, you can Google Richard Pryor 1974 album, uh, yep. and it'll be the only thing that comes up. Right Now, Pryor used the comedy store almost exclusively as the incubator for the material that would end up on that album and his Grammy award-winning follow-up albums. Uh-huh. It was at the comedy store that Pryor finally threw off his Bill Cosby clone act, and he became a revolutionary. And for Mitzi, he became the goose that laid the golden egg. Sure. Yeah. His name meant sold out shows when he wanted to test new material. Mitzi would clear the lineups for the nights he wanted. He'd let a handful of other comics like Paul Mooney, Marsha Warfield, and David Letterman open for him. Uh-huh. Prior showing up at the store meant taking slots from other comics, but they rarely cared because they recognized that Prior was as close to a genius as, as their profession had. Right. It meant and tourists and celebrities lined up around the block to try to snag one of 200 seats to catch his act for the low, low price of $5. That's insane. It's insane. And I mean, just like Pryor really was a genius. If you go back and watch any of his or listen to any of his stuff from that time period, what's amazing is how not dated it is. Mm. Like, And I think Danielle and I kind of talked about this where it's like he had this ability to tell the most horrific horrifying stories about his own life and upbringing and whatnot Mm -hmm. and you're just rolling on the floor laughing yeah howie mandel in the comedy store is talking to mike binder and he's like were you here the the night he did the night he played god and mike Mm. binder is like no and howie mandel has this whole thing i'm not going to ruin the story for you because it's actually a really great story if you can watch the comedy store docuseries on showtime it's really great but it's one of those things that like you're listening to it and it's like there's no way this is funny but i'm sure to have seen that as Uh an act by richard Pryor was just like you'd leave there being like were you there the night that that uh that Pryor played god yeah like Okay, so low, low price of $5. Pryor brought so much money into the club that Mitzi was actually able to buy the entire building. Mm -hmm. So the entire thing that had been Ciro's, they were renting out a little chunk of it. And she was like, give me the whole building. Wow. She built a 450 seat space that she dubbed the main room. The little 99 seat theater would remain as the original room. Most of the work that was done to build that room was done by the comics. 
Right. You know, they were lugging paint and taking Mitzi's credit card to go buy lumber and all that stuff. She opened other comedy store branches in Westwood, Pacific Beach, and San Diego, although the San Diego uh, location would later move to La Jolla. Um, She expanded outside of California with a college concert tour named A Night at the Comedy Store. Mitzi still looked at her comedy empire as a quote-unquote college of comedy with Mm -hmm. a curriculum that allowed young comedians to develop their work in graduated stages. So they'd Uh start at the potluck nights, then they would move to the regular lineup in the original room, and from there they could move to headliner status in the main room. Everywhere she looked, she saw that she was producing results in her comics. They were appearing on The Tonight Show. They were getting guest host spots on The Tonight Show, like David Letterman. They were appearing on variety shows like the Starlin Vocal (laughs) Band and Laughing, and even Pryor's own variety show, The Richard Pryor Show. And because she saw her club as a college, she saw absolutely no reason to pay her students. Yep. And for a really long time, the comics didn't mind. Everything that you read about those early days after Mitzi took over, which was really in the 1970s, those years, it was Jay Leno sleeping on the back steps of the comedy store, like right when he'd moved to LA because he didn't have a house. It was people staying up all night. It was Richard Pryor showing up and testing out material and then asking the comics who were new, like what's working, what's not working. Like, you know, it was just this insane sense of camaraderie at the store they were they were struggling together they were working on their material together sleeping on each other's couches drinking and doing drugs together (laughs) and this carrot of big time success was always dangling right in front of their noses um at this time it's it's Robin Williams, it's Jay Leno, it's Jimmy J.J. Walker, it's Tim Dreesen, Richard Lewis, David Letterman, uh, Mike Binder, Argus Hamilton, John Witherspoon, David Brenner, Brian Allen, George Miller. All of these guys are coming through the comedy store. They're all there during this time, which leads us to the strike. So, uh, okay, picture the scene. It's New Year's Day, 1979. Cantor's Deli, which we've been to, oh yeah, is and that was like a that was a huge because I think it was a twenty four hour diner at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the comics would go and do their shows, and then they'd all go and like you know split a plate of French fries or whatever the fuck at Cantor's afterwards. So Cantor's Deli is packed with comics. They're all buzzing with the energy of these incredible shows that they'd all done that evening. Everyone yeah. has stories of how they're like, oh my god, I just, I slaughtered, I killed, I I murdered the audience. Right. A comic named Michael Rappert leans over to Tom Dreesen while telling stories of his success that night. And he asked to borrow $5 for breakfast. And that night, Dreesen got to thinking like it had Mm. never bothered him that comics didn't get paid at the store because that's what they signed up for. But on that New Year's morning, the inequity of the situation started to get to him. He and his fellow comics had packed the various store locations that night. Cover had been $20 a head Uh at 400 seats per show and three shows. It was $24,000 that Mitzi had taken in that night. That's and nuts. the comics didn't see a cent of it. Wow. So two weeks later, Mitzi's assistant stopped Dreesen as he'd showed up at the comedy store. And Dreesen is a former loading dock teamster who was helping workers right. organize and unionize throughout the 60s and 70s. So he knows he this whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this assistant told him that he'd been playing, that he'd be playing the main room that evening instead of the original room, which main room is the 450 seat theater. Original is the 99. Right. And Dreesen's like, oh, fuck yes. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. The main 
Green Room has a wider stage. It has better lighting. And he'd be on the bill with Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, and Elaine uh-huh. Boozler. So he's like, this sounds fucking great. He did not know at the time that this was an idea that Mitzi was launching. And she was calling it the best of the comedy store because she wanted to get butts and seats in the main room. Her uh-huh. idea had been that she would bring in, you know, Sammy's friends, his like right. big comedy friends, and they would be in the main room. But they were like, mm-mm. We're all doing our shit in Vegas and LA is way too close. We're going to siphon off our audiences. (laughs) So we're like, sorry, we're not going to come and perform in your little club. Right. And she was like, fuck, because she built this 450 seat room. Right. And she was like, we need to do something. And it was actually Argus Hamilton who was like, why don't you do like a greatest hits of comedy in that room? And you can do it with the headliners who are, you know, yeah, we've gotten some success here. And she was like, Hmm. So that's what she does at Cantor's. After this show, Jay Leno was like, um, does this seem fair to anybody else? Like we packed the place tonight with uh-huh. a $15 cover and a two drink minimum. And like, shouldn't we be getting something for that? Right. Dreesen again, did the math and realized if they asked for half of the door, it uh-huh. would have amounted to $800 a person. Okay. Which for these guys, they're buying five bucks from each other for breakfast. Like right. This. And actually of this group, like Robin Williams, I think already had Mork and Mindy, Jay uh-huh. Leno and David Letterman were already doing their thing. Tim Dreesen was already making a, he's already, you know, doing appearances on the tonight show. The one person that it was actually going to help was Elaine Boozler. Hmm. Yeah. Dreesen's thinking about all this and about how this other comic, Michael Report, had borrowed $5 for breakfast. Uh-huh. And he starts thinking about other stuff. Like he thinks about how Marsha Warfield has to steal restaurant crackers to eat uh-huh. and how she doesn't have a car. So when her roommate can't pick her up after her shows, she has to walk home from the store through an area that is at the time being terrorized by the Hillside Strangler. Ooh. Rent yeah. is going up. Gas is now a dollar a gallon. And Leno says the sense is that our time and effort and talents aren't worth anything. Right. So this group, they gather about 20 comics that include Leno, Letterman, Dreesen, Robin Williams, George Miller, Gallagher, and more to discuss Gallagher. Um, (laughs) uh, Dreesen was named like the de facto spokesman of the group. And he went to Mitzi to try and negotiate. His first offer was so, so humble. He said, add a dollar to the 450 cover charge and split that extra dollar among the comedians. It would amount to to like $200 split between the comics. So So just like like a little bit of money, a little, like he was like gas money, you know, like something or just pay them $5 a set. And Mitzi was like, no, wow. She stuck to her line that the store was a training ground, that people didn't come to the store for the comedians. They came to see the store. And Uh, Andreessen was like, okay, well then don't have any comics and see how many people show up. Right. And she's like, get out. Um, (laughs) So the comics decide that they don't really have a choice but to organize. They formed what they called comedians for compensation. Mm. And like the the issue was, is that they weren't employees. They were independent. They were independent contractors. Right. So they couldn't form a union. 
but it was an organized effort. Yeah. And you can still band together and refuse to mm-hmm. play ball with her. You know, mm-hmm. they got uh, attorney Mark Lanau, Lonau, Letterman's lawyer recommended by Carson himself to like, you know, be their counsel. Uh, comics like Jimmy Walker and Robin Williams were worried about going against Mitzi, but they were like, we won't cross the line if you guys decide to strike. Right. Support for comedians for compensation, which I'm now going to call CFC, was was really high. Dreesen uh-huh. got a telegram that read, Dear Tom, so glad you've arrived. Have cue cards, man, who does great picket signs. Congratulations and go get them. Telegram was signed Bob Hope. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul Mooney got a message that read, quote, to the comics of the newly formed comedy union, I write these words of support because I believe your cause to be just and wholly within the concept of management and labor. It is not only immoral to work for nothing, it is also illegal. Slavery was banned with the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation over one century ago. I believe it is within the artist's rights and privileges to receive proper compensation for his or her efforts. I want you to know I would honor your picket lines if need be. I am sure that the most firm-minded artists in the community would be supportive of you. Sincerely, Richard Pryor. Wow. I mean, that's her, like, like you said, that's her golden goose. So. Yeah. So the comics yeah. start picketing the store with signs that read like, no buck, no yucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> big names like George Carlin are donating to the strike fund. Uh, Jay Leno showed up in a tank. Uh, oh, I've seen pictures of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bigger names were staying off the picket line until David Letterman decided to join in. And apparently when Mitzi saw that David Letterman had said, he talks about this in the comedy store doc, when Letterman decided to join in, Mitzi called him and she was like, you're breaking my heart. Why are you doing this? Like, I thought we were friends. And he was like, it's not personal. Like yeah. it's just about what's doing right. Right. Mitzi for her part was crushed that her children, because that is the way that she saw them. Yeah. Um, which is weird because she was also fucking a bunch of them. She was oh, crushed that her children. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was crushed that her children were going against her and it wasn't until Letterman joined the line that Mitzi made an offer she would pay $25 a set except for Tuesdays through Thursday nights which would feature beginners who would work for free the bigger names would get even more for playing the bigger rooms but the comics okay. were like no way not good enough yeah. No, no one works for free. Proposals started going back and forth, but nothing worked for both sides. Discussions went on and on until. <laughs> Sorry. They w- <laughs> proposals and negotiations went on and on and on until Jay Leno got hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> So here's what happened there. Biff Maynard, one of the Mitzi loyalists, had just spoken to AFTRA to get the union support for Mitzi, which doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Why would, why would they one? Why would they? And two, what he said at this meeting was this quote, artists don't deserve to get paid, which Um, went over like a lead balloon to a fucking performers union. Right. To an artist's union. Yes. That's. Yeah, in case anybody, you need to work on your coercion. You need to work on every. You need to work on everything. In case anybody is wondering, AFTRA stands for the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Uh-huh. 
So Biff leaves that meeting in a huff because they're like, fuck you get out of here. So he's like, fine, I'm leaving and I'm going home. And he goes <laughs> tearing back to the store, like a bat out of hell. He screeches into the parking lot and he swerves towards Lanau, the lawyer and Jay Leno. Everybody's whoa. like, whoa, whoa, shit. And then there's a loud thump. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Leno crumples to the ground. Maynard Ooh. freaks out and he runs into the store and he's like, I fucking hit Jay Leno. I hit Jay Leno. And everybody's like, Biff hit Jay Leno. And everybody's freaking out. Dreesen is like, oh my God. And he goes to check on Leno and he kneels down next to him. Leno's lying on the ground. Eyes are closed. And he's like, uh, he's like moaning. Right. Mm-hmm. And Dreesen says, Jay, can you hear me? And Leno opened one eye and winked at Dreesen. <laughs> Good job. Good job, Jay Leno. The lawyer is like, nobody fucking say anything. Like, right. Leno got hit by a car because employers were liable when a picket is when a picketer is injured on the line. Mm-hmm. So the stunt actually works. And Mitzi yeah. comes to Dreesen and she's like, we're settling this now. Right. They go into a room and talk. By 5 a.m., they had an agreement. <laughs> Comics would get half of the door in the main room and $25 per set in the other rooms. They also included a non-retaliation clause, which was written into the agreement that said that Mitzi, nor anybody from the club, nor anybody from any side could take anything out on any of the comics who'd organized the protests. Yeah, that seems important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems like, oh, okay. We can finally breathe. A statement released on behalf of the store said, it's back to funny business. The fucking Mitzi Shore goes to the LA Times and she says, it is against my basic philosophy and the principles of the comedy store that the settlement was made. You might say I was unionized into a corner. Mm. Just like, just move on. Like, right. Yeah. Un- kick the hornet's nest again. Like, okay. Unsurprisingly, Mitzi does not hold her end up, hold up her end of the bargain. Uh-huh. The members of CFC's executive committee, which were headliners like George Miller and Elaine Boozler, suddenly found themselves without slots at the store. Like they would okay. call and they'd be like, when am I performing? And they were like, you're not. So this whole non-retaliation thing. Absolutely. Little horseshit. Now, for the big names like Dreesen and Miller and Leno and all that stuff, frustrating. Right. But not the end of the world. It was, however, devastating for struggling comics lives like Steve Libitkin. Mm. Steve Libitkin was a young Jewish comic from New York. Him and Richard Lewis came up at the same time. They became very, very, very close during Mm. their days trying to break into the scene at the improv. And they actually made a blood oath to one another that if one of them got big, he'd help the other one make it too. Mm. Libitkin moved to LA after Carson moved the tonight show, because he knew that the talent scouts weren't going to be like, he was like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like fly to New York twice a month to find, like, I'm not doing this. Right. I'm going to yeah. move to New York. Libitkin also had like just a run of bad luck throughout his career. Like for instance, a tonight show scout had caught his act at the store and was like, give me a call next week. Let's see if we can get you on the show. Libitkin's like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. But the scout came back the very next night and saw Libitkin doing some material that didn't go over that well with the audience. Mm. So when Steve called the scout the next week, the scout was basically like, never mind. So like the tonight show was like just in his grasp. And then it wasn't like dangling that carrot. Um, After the disappointment of losing the tonight show, Steve, 
Steve told Richard Lewis that it was okay because he was making a movie called Dante Shaco. The whole thing about this movie is so weird because he's like, I've like done market research. And his market research was that he got like 19 comedian friends and mm. was like, watch Blazing Saddles and make notes of when you have like a big belly laugh, a chuckle, or like when you smile. And then they had, he had them read his script and do the same yeah. thing. And he was like, bye. Like from the data I've collected, Blazing Saddles yeah. got like 49 laughs and mine got like 286. Seems like the scientific method might be a little flawed there. Maybe, but by all accounts, people were like, he was like, he was fucking funny, like a yeah. hilarious dude. Right. But so he writes this movie called Dante Shaco and he's like, it's guaranteed to be a hit. He borrows thousands of dollars from his dad and his brother. And the movie got made, but it never got picked up. Yeah. And he had, he had resistance to what he called straight jobs that he felt took time away from his chance of making it as a comic. Sure. Um, in I'm Dying Up Here, there's like a bunch of like lists that Steve wrote and letters that he wrote to his brother and his dad. Based, like there's one thing where he's like, um, if you want to get me a gift for my birthday, make it that the next time I talk to you, you don't talk about the doubts that you have about me making it as a comic. Oof, yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Um, after the agreement, Dreesen made one last speech to the executive committee of the CFC. He was like, okay, like, yes, good job. He's going to pass off the reins to this woman uh, who's going to be like the head point person from that point right. out. And he's like, super proud of it. Good job, everybody. Yay. And he's trying to get out the door because he has an appointment to get to. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was like an appointment with a booker or something like that. Yeah. Um, but on his way out, Libitkin caught Dreesen and was like, can I talk to you for a sec? And Libitkin says, I called into the store this week and Mitzi did not give me any time slots. And that's happened to other people too. I'm afraid that if, if you and the other big guys leave the group, then she's going to retaliate against all us little guys who were active in the strike. Yeah. Dreesen reassured him that that wouldn't happen because it was in the contract. She can't retaliate. <laughs> Libitkin nodded and was kind of like, okay, but he didn't look uh -huh. super convinced. And Dreesen said, Okay, I'll tell you what, I promise that I won't go back to the comedy store until you go back. Okay. Mm. And Steve was like, okay. But the truth is, is that Steve Lubitkin was not doing well. A few nights yeah. after he has this conversation with Dreesen, Lewis gets a call from Steve. Mm -hmm. And Steve tells him that he's seeing faces and rugs and carpets mm. and all of this stuff. And Lewis was like, this is weird, yeah. you know, but he kind of just chalked it up to Steve being weird. And he right. was like, I do that too. You know, like if you stare at something for too long, you start to see a face in it. Like I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. And was Steve, I don't know if you came across this in research. Was he like doing drugs and stuff? Cause that was so rampant. In that. Um, I think he was doing like a little bit of marijuana. Like okay. he wasn't. So it wasn't necessarily. No. And during this time, he's got a girlfriend who I'm going to mention here in a sec. I think the girlfriend calls his brother. Cause his brother is like, um, I think a psychiatrist hmm. and his brother comes to LA from New York, like makes him go to a doctor, checks him out, like does a whole thing. And Steve is like, I'm okay. Like I'm depressed. You know, and the doctor was like, he's depressed. They didn't give him any medication. And he was like, I'm going to be okay. And then the last couple of days of his trip of his brother's trip, he seemed to be like improving in spirits. Mm -hmm. So going back to the conversation that he had with Lewis, like I said, Lewis was like, okay, this is weird, but you're weird. So maybe not that big of a deal. Yeah. 
But it wasn't just that. Like Steve was broke. He'd been blackballed from the comedy store and he'd been basically banished from comedy as a whole. And he Mm. truly felt that Mitzi was going to make sure he never worked again. On Friday, June 1st, Steve attended a meeting with the other CFC executive committee members. And afterwards, they they convened at the house of Joe Ann Ashtrow, she was the woman that Dreesen had like passed the reins to. And they met to discuss like where they stood with the deal. Cause there was this whole fucking thing with the deal that mm. like, they were like, okay, but Mitzi hated it. And she's obviously like already starting to do retaliation. Some other union body, it wasn't AFTRA, but some other union body came in and was like, sorry, this isn't a deal until we say it's a deal. Mm. And like, so then that was starting to fucking, and like, you know, everything's just like, everything's getting tense. The comics are getting frustrated because, because they weren't working and they were like, maybe we should go back to working for free. Maybe if they did, Mitzi would reopen the Westwood location, which she had closed on Tuesday through Thursday nights because she was like, I'm losing money. Mm -hmm. Um, She said she was losing money because of small crowds and her doing that effectively reduced the number of store slots from 250 slots a week to 70. All of this is a fr- like a flagrant violation of the agreement that they've made. Yeah, yeah, very blatant. Yeah, with the number of slots reduced, it really kind of became every comic for himself. And suddenly Lubitkin stands up at this meeting. He stands up and he says that he has an appointment. As he's leaving, he says, I want you all to not worry anymore. Everything is going to be fine. I'm going to take care of it. Steve left that meeting and drove himself to the comedy store. He parked his car around the corner, left the keys in the ignition and walked east on sunset. Mm-hmm. Around 6.40 p.m., a man looks out his window across the street from the comedy store and sees a man on the roof of the Continental Hyatt House, which was across the parking lot. Like it was like the comedy store, the comedy store's parking lot and the Continental Hyatt House. Two people were walking together about 50 feet from the Hyatt when they heard a scream. And when they looked up, they see a body falling from the roof of the Hyatt house towards the concrete parking lot. Mm. Paramedics arrived in a few minutes, but they couldn't revive the victim. An hour later, police investigators pull a handwritten note from the man's pocket. The note reads, my name is Steve Libitkin. I used to work at the comedy store. Maybe this will bring about fairness to Barry, his brother. I love you. You've been generous and good to me always. To dad, I love you for raising me and giving me my sense of humor. To Susan, his girlfriend, I love you, but it would have been hell for us to continue. To mom, I'll be joining you soon. I love you. To Ginny, I love you, beautiful sister-in-law. You're terrific. To Rich Lewis, you're the best blood brother a man can have. I love you. To the CFC, I guess nice guys do finish last. To the world, fairness, 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 please, before it's too late. To all comedians, unite. It's in your best interest. Suze, play my dumb, dumb, dumb last set in Westwood cassette at the funeral in L.A. Bury me next to mom in New York. No revenge, please. Only love. Yeah, that's a, that's just such a sad story. Yeah. I've, hun- I've, heard, I've heard Richard Lewis talk about it on some interviews. It's, mm-hmm. He's still broken up about it. A hundred feet away, comics at the comedy store were already starting to make macabre jokes about the jumper because mm. it hadn't occurred to them that, that it, it could be. have anything connected to their world Yeah. until a detective arrived letting doorman Lou Deck know that the 
decedent might be an employee and presenting deck with a baggie containing Lubetkin's blood smeared driver's license. Mm. Apparently the detective was like, where's Mitzi? Yeah. And deck was like, she's not here. She's in La Jolla. And then the detective was like, okay, well then you need to come and identify the body. And deck was like, absolutely fucking no. not yeah. because he'd already seen the driver's license. He was like, I know. I I, absolutely not. Susan Evans, his girlfriend found, she came home to find two cops on her doorstep who told her the news. She couldn't say anything. She said she couldn't cry. She called Steve's brother to tell him the news. And then she left her apartment. She just started walking when she sort of like came out of her days. She found that she was wandering the second floor back hallways of the comedy store. Mm -hmm. And so she just starts like looking around in an empty room. She found a poster from Dante Shaco, the movie Steve had made. She picked up the poster, took it into Mitzi's office, propped it up on the sofa across from Mitzi's desk, grabbed a marker and wrote, got the message above it on the wall. Mm -hmm. Richard Lewis wandered into the LA improv that night bummed because he'd just broken up with his girlfriend and a comic he barely knew called out across the room with the news. Hey Lewis, did you hear about Lubitkin? He jumped off the Hyatt house and killed himself. Jesus. Lewis flew into a rage. He slammed the comic into the wall. He asked a friend to drive him to Steve's apartment, but Susan wasn't home. And he headed back to the improv and ordered the first drink of a bender that would last 15 years. Yeah. I I remember he, I remember him talking about that. Yeah. Tom Dreesen was waiting to go on stage for a gig at Harris. Oh yeah. mm -hmm, uh, I think in Tahoe when he got the news. I mean, it was literally like he got the phone call and then they were like places. And he was like, Jesus. Yeah. So he goes out and he does the hardest set of his life. And he remembers the promise that he made to Libitkin. I won't go back on. I won't go back until you go back. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he held that promise until Mitzi Shore died in 2018. He returned for her memorial show. Um, A bunch of people never went back. Jay Leno never performed again at the comedy Mm -hmm. store. Marsha Warfield never performed at the comedy store again. Uh, George Allen, a bunch of people were just like, nope. Nope. I really, really wish that I could say that Steve's death brought a close to the strike and all of the troubles, but it didn't. Terms of the contract remained unhonored. Comics got paid more than others. And that the camaraderie that I was talking about earlier that was so prevalent at the start was just absolutely gone. Mm -hmm. According to many, this was the end of LA's golden era of comedy. Right. From the Comedy Store's website, quote, the strike changed Mitzi forever. The strike turned Mitzi into a driven businesswoman and an era passed into history, a happy-go-lucky partying era known as as the late 1970s in Los Angeles. It would be business from now on. Bohemia became bottom line. Mm-hmm. But there is not a club in the country that doesn't pay its comics now. Yeah. Comedy store still stands today. It has seen the likes of Tim Allen, Louis Anderson, Roseanne Barr, Bill Burr, Jim Carrey, Dana Carvey, Chevy Chase, Cheech and Chong, Whitney <laughs> Cummings, Andrew Dice Clay, Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg, Gilbert Gottfried, Bob Saget, Kathy Griffin, Chelsea Handler, Kevin Hart, Bill Hicks, Sam Kinison, Martin Lawrence, Bobby Lee, David Spade, Yakov Smirnoff. <laughs> which I don't know if any of the young kids will remember. Oh, man. Yeah, I just remember mm-hmm. him from Night Court. 
Mm-hmm. Sarah Silverman, Mitzi's own son, Polly. Mm-hmm. Um, Gary Shandling, him and Smirnoff crossed the picket line. Jerry Seinfeld, yeah. Tom Segura, Ray Romano, Paul Rodriguez, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Dennis Miller, Mark Marin, Howie Mandel, Norm McDonald, Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Maher, and more are all alumni of the comedy store. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a bunch of perverts that I am not naming in that list because sure. fuck those guys. Yeah. Crest Hill. The house that was a home to everyone from Argus Hamilton to Sam Kinison. Let me talk a little bit about this house. The house was yeah. like a hundred. It was up on the hill above right. uh, the comedy store. Like you could look down and see the comedy store. It was about a hundred yards up the hill. So like I was saying, it was home to everyone from Argus Hamilton to Sam Kinison. Hamilton, when he was trying to get clean, Kinison, when he was doing anything but, <laughs> and the house was part of the deal when Mitzi eventually bought up the rest of Ciro's to expand the store. Um, yeah. The debauchery at Crest Hill is notorious. They referred to it as the frat house. Mm-hmm. Kinnison, this is good grief. Kinnison urinated on Mark Marin's bed. Yep, I've heard um, that. Dice through dishes out the window. <laughs> he was mad that others weren't cleaning up after themselves. Yeah, that seems like a dice thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yakov Smirnov was like um, sort of the de facto like handyman around the place. And mm. like he would go to bed at 11 p.m. every night, which I was like, how did you perform it? It doesn't matter. But he would go to bed at 11 p.m. every night and he would wake up in the morning and there was a big mirror on the wall that was always down. And on this, there was this like massive oak table that they all would mm. sit around and party at. And every morning when when Yakov Smirnov would wake up, the mirror was on the table and it was covered in powder. And Smirnov was <laughs> like, what are these people doing taking this mirroring, mirror down and like eating powdered donuts on it? <laughs> like he had no clue what was going so, on. So innocent. Yeah. Yes. It was also very interesting to see, you know, like I said, Argus Hamilton was in there. It like it had started out kind of as like a halfway house mm-hmm. for comics who were trying to get clean. And then that, I think that just kind of immediately fell to the wayside, but it was really interesting to see like dice was clean. Yeah. Oh yeah. I dice. think he's, he's always been, he's been like a mm-hmm. teetotaler, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He was never doing that stuff, but then he's living there with Sam Kinison who like could not. If you want to like from putting stuff up his nose, I don't know if they're still available, but if you can go back into like the archives of the Mark Maron uh, WTF podcast, mm-hmm. he tells stories about he kind of went out there in the mid 80s, like at the mm-hmm. height of Kinnison mm-hmm. and kind of fell in with the Kinnison crew. And he basically like he's talked about how like by the time he left to come back to Albuquerque, he was just like coked out of his mind. Albuquerque? And paranoid. Yeah. Maron's from Albuquerque. Really? You didn't know that? Yeah. I yeah. Didn't he's, know that. He's a Burkenio. Yeah. Um, good job good job <laughs> but yeah he was he was driving back he he's talked about driving through the desert on his way back here because he just had to escape yeah and like, he, talks he does about, not say flattering things about kinnison he talks about in some of the articles that i read he talks about living in that house mm-hmm. as like the beginning of something like deep and very dark in his life yeah yeah he um, basically fell apart for a while there is a picture of Kinnison and Marin sitting across the table from each other. And so they're like this. And then in the background of the picture, like the third person at the table is an unknown comic who has his hood pulled all the way over his head because he's doing a fucking line off the table. Yeah. You know, and, it, and the, the caption for that picture was so funny. It was like unknown comic 
like an unknown comic who for some reason is like it's all very like hmm what can be going on here um so the house saw a lot of shit and it was rumored that there was even an underground tunnel that led to the basement of the comedy store a leftover hmm. from when it was Ciro's and the mob ran it oh well uh- it's believable, maybe. Okay. The store, comedy store turned 50 this year, and the club still looks exactly like it did after Mitzi took over. Mm-hmm. Wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling black. Her office on the top floor sits exactly as it was on the day Mitzi left it for the last time. Wow. Uh, from the LA Times, quote, the pills in her drawer, papers on desk, and photos on her wall haven't been touched since she stopped running the club in 2002. Mitzi died in 20. 2018, though many, including her son, Peter, who took over as CEO, essentially in 2002, Uh say that she's still there in spirit. There is, it's funny because part of the reason I dipped into this entire thing originally, which was sometime last year, was because I was trying to do a ghosts of the comedy store story, Uh um, of which there are many. What's his name? Jay Moore. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Jay Moore says that anytime he's on stage at, I think the main room, the right side of his face is always cold. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's stuff like, mm-hmm, it's stuff yeah. like that. Somebody else said that they walked into, I think the original room and all of the chairs had been stacked up on one t- on top of one another, all the way up to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And they were like, fuck this. And they turned around and left. And when they came back in a few minutes later, the chairs were all back where they should be. Yeah. That's mm, yeah. So just a little <laughs> bit of creepy stuff there. Um, and that is just the tip of the iceberg regarding the history of the comedy store and the 1979 comedy store strike. That's such a crazy story. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't think I'd ever heard of the, the Jay Little getting hit by the car. <laughs> Uh, like that's that's amazing and it's, it's just such a brilliant tactic it's really <laughs> funny because like you know these guys are getting up there in years now mm-hmm. and it's so funny to hear them talk about this stuff how it was like you go you fucking couldn't go anywhere with jay leno because he was such a fucking ham they talk about mm-hmm. trying to do these cfc meetings and like leno's you know doing prat falls and pulling faces and doing all this stuff like they had to be like can you like can you stop just, just turn it off for a minute yeah. yeah and it's interesting because at one moment david letterman was like oh god we would just all be sitting there like can somebody come pick jay up can his mom come and pick him up <laughs> like you know um, I mean, that that whole relationship between leno and letterman like that's that i mean obviously that's a whole other episode but I've read the, what is the book? Is it like uh, the late shift or the late show or whatever? It's mm-hmm. the book about the whole f- battle for the who took mm-hmm. over the Tonight Show. That's a fucking crazy story. That's like Shakespearean. It like, is. It is. And ba- like, I won't give it to you. I won't give it to all of you guys uh, because, like you said, Scotty, it's a whole story in and of itself. But the gist of it is, is that it seemed like it was going, it was going to Letterman, and then uh-huh. something happened, and the deal got pulled, and it went to Leno instead. And Uh it's interesting because they were friends, like they were friends and they have not been in the same room together since. I think they have a couple times, like recently, because they did some little video with Oprah. This is within the last 
five years or something it was like a super bowl ad or something like there have been a couple little things but like mm. other than that uh, yeah and like they didn't talk to each other for decades um right. and it's really it's the interesting thing is that all of the comics that they came up with are like i absolutely see why david letterman is mad and i like i honor that he is mad about it and I probably would have done the same thing if I was in Leno's shoes. Well, I think like the whole, the easy narrative has always been to turn Jay Leno into the villain. And I think as always, as we talk about it, it's always way more complicated than that. It is true. I think that like Letterman was Carson's chosen successor. Mm-hmm. Carson wanted Letterman. Um, yeah. But also Carson was like a dick. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was not a nice man. <laughs> Like, no, no, he uh, was not a nice man. He frequently fat shamed poor Ed McMahon, who like mm-hmm. it's hilarious to go back and look at Ed McMahon now. And it's like, yeah. why are you, why are you busting his chops so much? He came out with the Ed McMahon diet, which was like steak, asparagus with hollandaise sauce, right? And a glass of whiskey. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the whole I mean, we could just keep going on and on, but like the whole Carson uh, John Rivers feud is is another fascinating. Story. Oh, he had feuds with so many people. He was yeah. also like notorious, uh, no, like notoriously did not like female comics. Joan Rivers mm-hmm. was like the one exception to that rule until she right. pissed him off. You know, he was he was he was a dick. Um, yeah, and frankly, like. I mean, I love David Letterman as a comic, but you hear stories about him. And I'm like, I'm not sure he's the nicest guy either. You know? I don't know that any of them are the nicest guy because I don't think I don't think comedy breeds nicety. Like, well, I have heard though, um, and I've actually heard from people who've met him that Jane Leno, at least on the surface, is a very friendly person in a way that Letterman isn't. So. Right. I think. I think. I think with comedians, I think you might fall into one of two camps, which is either you're a dick. Uh huh. Or you're fucking annoying. Right. <laughs> and I think that's I think the camp Leno that Leno the fucking good I think Robin Williams fell into that category as well. That it oh, was yeah. just like, oh, People my talk God. about being around Robin Williams at that time period. It's just like, it was like being in the center of a hurricane. Yeah. Like, it was too much. Yeah. Um, Robin Williams, also a notorious joke stealer. Yeah, notorious. Um, notorious. He was, co- yeah. he was like, so coked up, and he would forget that he'd heard people tell stories, and then he would go on the Tonight Show and, like, mm-hmm. repeat people's jokes. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. If you want to learn more about this and, like, really, really go in-depth into it, um, I would highly suggest <laughs> reading um i'm dying up here uh it's a quick read and it's and the guy who wrote it he wrote the book because when the comedy store opened the la times was like this comedy club is opening like what do you think about doing a comedy beat mm-hmm. so he was there he, he was, was like r- the guy yeah. he was there for everything he was there for richard Pryor showing up he was there for freddie prince jr he was like and the insight that he had to all of the drama that was going on is like fascinating. And the other thing I would suggest watching is the comedy store docuseries by Mike Binder on Showtime. My only beef with it is that it gets pretty apology, um, like apologist about uh, a couple of like pretty bad dudes in the last episode or two. Um, So I'd say like cut it off before then, but it's just, I mean, like footage of Michael Keaton doing his weird act. Like I always um, forget that he started as a Kevin Pollack, who you mentioned, I always forget that they were comics. 
he there Michael Keaton had this thing where he would like pull out a bazooka Joe gum wrapper and he would tell the joke but then it would like it wouldn't be the joke it would be this like massive philosophical conversation that bazooka <laughs> Joe was having with like you know yeah he was funny. yeah he was a uh, uh a, a very like interesting, very charming comic, but yeah, it, it, it goes into all of those guys, Jimmy JJ Walker and Sam Kinison, who was a mess. Um, I, you and we were talking about it just the other night, like Sam Kinison, like there are a lot of comics who I don't particularly like, but I can look at them and be like, I, I get it. I get why people like, mm-hmm. like uh, one I think of even aside from the conservative politics, but like Dennis Miller is someone where it's like his whole like long kind of erudite sort of style of comedy to me is grating, but I get why people like it. I get mm-hmm. why it has some appeal. Sam Kinison. I have never fucking understood that guy. No, no. It just seems like, the absolute worst. And he was, he was incredibly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, you know, just like, uh, like a raging addict, um, mm-hmm. which is also interesting well, because his background, he was a, you know, like you were preacher. saying, yeah. yeah, he was like a revival preacher. Yeah. Well, and if you uh, hear Mark Maron stories about him, it's just like the Kinnison behind the scenes was, it sure sounds like a real toxic person. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> So when they were living at the house, one of the stories and the BuzzFeed article is also really great. The BuzzFeed article is solely about the house, Uh but it talks about how, so there was Mitzi had a rule at the house that it could only be comics living there. No wives, no girlfriends, fuck, and no families. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy, LeBeau, I think, I don't remember his last name, but there was another comic who was living there, but like he moved his girlfriend in. And so him and Kennison and the girlfriend were like all staying in like one room. Seems like bad news. Yeah. And so like, you know, I talked about Dice throwing the dishes out the window. He was like, fuck this. Like this, I like this house is a mess. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was always complaining about Kinnison and, and LeBeau being in the house and, and all the craziness that was going on. And one day Mitzi is like, Kinnison, LeBeau, like you're out, you're out of the house, get your shit out by this afternoon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it was fucking dice. <laughs> 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 and I don't, I'm sure you know about this, but Kennison and Andrew Dice Clay had this massive feud. Mm-hmm. Them being kicked out of the house is what spawned that feud. Interesting. I knew that, I always assumed that they had a feud, basically like who gets to be the most like blatantly misogynistic mm-hmm. comic, like who gets to own that lane. I will say about Dice, if you look at his act from the time, which was notorious, I mean, like National Organization of Women was picketing him and stuff. It was very clear that he was playing a character, whether you, you know, agree with that or not. I don't mm-hmm. think that was him exactly. Kinnison was Kinnison. Like he was exactly what you saw. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the thing is too, is that it's like, uh, I'm not trying to be like, well, it's, it was the times, So it was okay, but it was the times. And it's like, there wasn't a comic out there who was not doing shitty jokes about women. Uh-huh. Who wasn't doing like homophobic shit. Like, I, again, Murphy. this isn't, yes. Again, this isn't to be like, yeah. oh, it was okay. But it's like, I get it because that's what everybody was doing at that time. Again, not condoning it. It's just like, of course they were doing it because everybody was doing it for a comedian to be like transphobic now is just fucking dumb. 
Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care how great your quote unquote comedy is. If you have to attack a vulnerable community, even if you are a member of a vulnerable community as well, like you're just an asshole. Right. I mean, the the defensive dice that I've heard people make, and I kind of get it. I'm just not sure it was that effective, is that he was, in a way, making himself the butt of the joke. We were talking about the whole punching up versus punching down thing. Mm-hmm. Because he's playing, he was playing a blatantly lunk-headed, like, caricature of, like, yeah, a misogynistic. He, def- he definitely and, was doing that, I think. So there was, I think there was maybe an attempt to, you could say he was satirizing this type of character. Mm-hmm. The problem was, like, the I've watched some of his stuff. I remember watching back at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just like that never really it's like what I've said about American Psycho. It's like I get what you were going for. But I don't know that sure it was it really <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it was really paid off. Right. Um also an- another like you know, this this <laughs> this feud that the two of them got into, a big part of it was that Sam Kinison would go on and he'd be like, you know, well, Dice is a Jew. And <laughs> Dice was like, I've never fucking hidden that from anybody. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're yeah, like trying to Ha-ha, like this isn't a gotcha moment. Like right. everybody knows I'm Jewish. Yeah. Um, well, like Dice and like probably 80% of the other comics though. Like that's I mean, just, that's a weird thing for Kinnison to like. But that's what I mean is that I'm just like Kinnison was like a, a dick. Like I think, I think, I don't know if this is the exact quote, but I feel like Marin has referred to him as something along the lines of like a malevolent entity or something or a malevolent presence, like yeah. almost demonic. And like the, yeah. the place he, the place he occupied in Marin's mind, I think was like, like you said, that was like, I think Marin came out of He's talked about it. He, he came out of that whole environment, like actually traumatized. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really crazy. And it's also just like, you know, it was like, I was looking at that list of the people that I went through that I was like, you know, these are the comedy store alums and seeing like, man, we've just lost a lot of them. You know Mm. what I mean? Three of them this year alone. Who? Who are you thinking? Louis Anderson. Oh, of course. Bob Saget and Godfrey. Oh, goddamn! Yeah, you're right. Yeah. RIP for all of them. Yeah, I fucking um, loved Gilbert Gottfried, by the way. He was one of my favorites. <laughs> him, <laughs> I, I will say, like, him and Bobcat Goldthwait and a little bit of Sam Kinison, they just had this thing where it was like, it was, it was the very, yelly, like, shouty. Reading, yeah, thing mm-hmm. that I was like, interesting. Gilbert Gottfried and Bobcat Goldthwait, at least from what I know, you know, were, were at least somewhat decent people, I think. You can actually, they were malevolent yeah. entities. You can actually hear interviews of uh, with I think I found one on YouTube of Gilbert Godfrey just talking normal and it's like yeah that was very much a put up. Have you seen it was like uh, in the last couple of years where he did uh, he recited um, wet ass pussy but in his Gilbert Godfrey voice. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yes. No, I've I've yes. always I've always loved Gilbert Godfrey and one of my favorite Gilbert Godfrey things was, was like right after nine eleven. They were doing a comedy roast for somebody. I don't remember who, but it was like the week later and he made a 9-11 joke and the room just like got booze and people went quiet and you could kind of see him start to panic. And then he just went into the aristocrats. (laughs) 
Um, they they show it in the aristocrats documentary, <laughs> and apparently he just stretched it out for like fifteen minutes or something because he was just like, "I, you don't like that joke? All right, let's see what you think of this. Let's one. <laughs> see what you think of this one." Yeah, I gotta say, like stand up comedy is. I mean, even I, like. I think it is the one actual profession that I think takes takes more balls to be in than than any than any other kind of performer. Um, it yeah. is just so Karen Kilgariff from uh, My Favorite Murder talks about this. I think a lot that it's like it's just you, like yeah. sink or swim. It's and audiences are not you. shy about no letting you know when it doesn't. No, work. and you know. Sometimes you'll get like a, a merciful audience, but not always. Not often, I don't think. Yeah. yeah. Um, additionally, I'm Dying Up Here was made into a series that I believe you can also find on Showtime, uh, which is sort of like loosely based around a lot of the stories that come <laughs> out of there. There are a lot of comics, modern day comics show up. It takes place in the 1970s. Melissa Leo mm. plays what is very clearly like plays a character who's very clearly based on Mitzi um, named Goldie and all that stuff. So that's also interesting, but yeah, it's a, it's something that I think I've always been a little bit curious about, not in terms of like curious to do it, but it just is, like I said, I think it's, it's the one aspect of performance that I think takes takes more bravery. Oh, I I mean, I obviously I'm not a performer, but I couldn't do it, but I've, I've, always appreciate it you know and the, danielle and i talked about this i think like to me there is this weird gray area between horror and comedy and and when it works with stand-up comedy it's like there is something about the like the transgressiveness and and the sense of danger the problem is people do just meanness and bullying and call it transgressive and it's like not that's not actually it's not challenging anything but when you've got a performer up there who's actually like taking you into dangerous territory and they're just up there. I mean, this is what Pryor was so good at. Well, and I think the thing is, is that a lot of times people mistakenly equate dangerous territory with offensive and being an asshole. Yeah. And it actually isn't about that. Like it's like you can push the envelope without being a dick. And I think the amount of dudes I know who are like, yeah, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm like, are you? Are you really? Yeah. Are you? Because I mean, like in this conversation, I'm funnier than you. Right? So like, if you, I, I can't really see that like yeah. you working on it is uh, like, I, like right. I don't, I don't buy that you have a tight five. I buy that you have like a sloppy three and a half. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, and like, I don't mind when a comedian is offensive. What I don't like is meanness and bullying. Like you can like, yeah, definitely like, poke the bear you know say the thing you're not supposed to say but when you're being a bully i just i lose interest so it's like there's nothing about dave chappelle's transphobia that is like interesting or transgressive he's just being a dick he's he's not he's not like he's not stirring the pot he's not being provocative he's just being an asshole right i think the thing i think the thing for me for me too is like to me if you're going to do stuff that is you know, could be seen as transgressive. I think for me to be like, okay, that was worth it. You have to get me to a point where I'm like reconsidering my own point of view about things and not in a way of like, are Jews people like not in that kind of a way, but, but 
things that make me be like, man, I, wow, that that's like, that's making me think about stuff that I haven't thought about. Yeah. Like you're saying, if you're just like, yeah, yeah. if you're just saying things where you're like, you know, are women people like, dude. Right. Well, and and like, what was, what was transgressive about Sam Kinison's act? Like, it was just a guy yelling. I don't know. I guess he like yelled at people. I don't know. But like, that's just a guy yelling. That's all. It's so. I've never seen anything in anything he's done. That's beyond that to me so, no it's so and compare so, him but sorry don't mean to cut you off but i was just gonna say <laughs> compare kennison to bill hicks who i was talking about the other day who they were kind of mentioned in the same breath a lot because mm-hmm. bill hicks was genuinely transgressive and had interesting things to say it would make you reconsider your point of view and he he was not a shouter i mean i think he did a little bit but like there was actually an intelligence and an intention there and there's there's none of that that I've ever seen in Kennison stuff. No, Sorry no, to speak of the dead or whatever, but. Well, um, it's very funny though, because, you know, watching the comedy store documentary, um, <laughs> there's a lot of footage of Kennison and my dog is always like, I hate this. I hate this <laughs> with every fiber of my being. Like, I mean, why... she gets mad when you sneeze, so I can't imagine. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't matter if I have the volume turned, like, almost all the way down. She's still like, get this little stupid man off of the TV <laughs> immediately. She, yeah. She's she's not a fan. Yeah. Okay, that's all my right. story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah, well, that, that's a good one. Um, um, that's, that's such an interesting, and genuinely, it's like, there are parts of that story that are genuinely really sad. Yeah. Unexpectedly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I probably should have given a content warning. Oh, put one in the show notes, please. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Don't worry. I already okay. I already made that decision. <laughs> so Sorry. Um, all right. Well, glad to have you back. I'm glad to be back. I can't wait uh to get back to work on this. I've really missed doing the show over the summer. Yeah, and we'll we will try and get ourselves back to sort of a a, a regular a regular two week schedule. I think we're gonna. I think I'm gonna stick with the Friday rather than Thursday release date, mm-hmm. just because it's easier for me. So yeah, I no also one's wanna... complained. So <laughs> I also well, I mean, so there was one fan who was like, "Oh, that's right. <laughs> about it." But <laughs> I also right. want to give a special shout out to all of the people who came on for a weirdest thing. Thank you so much for stepping in for me, um, and being awesome and also. Super, super cool. Scotty brought this to my attention while I was still in Abingdon. We have gotten a couple of absolutely amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was so, 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 so chuffed uh, to see it. So to all of the people who stumbled across our podcast by keyword search weird um, <laughs> or were recommended to somebody recommended to listen to us by somebody that you know or people who have picked it up because somebody that you work with is listening to (laughs) us and you guys have decided to join in um thank you so so much for that thank you so much for those wonderful reviews um we love that shit so uh keep doing it keep them coming and other than that i guess you know the huge stay weird stay curious and we'll see you next time bye bye Blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing